Well, this 10th and final lesson on the books of Samuel have finally come. I'm really excited to share with you David's final years. In fact, that's the title of the lesson, David's final years. He does have a few more final days or months, if you want to call them that, at the beginning of 1 Kings. But nevertheless, this is going to wrap his whole story up uh, as he comes back into Jerusalem. And so that's really the segue from lesson 9, where we saw his fall from grace, his uh, double mortal sin with Bathsheba, Uriah, that whole debacle, uh, adultery, murder, and the fallout in his house, his bait, his both his actual family, but also his kingdom. And so at the end of last uh, lesson, David had to flee from his son Absalom, and he is he defeated Absalom, Joab killed his son, and now he needs to bring things back together again somehow, right? So that's where he left off. We're in chapter 19 right now. So chapter 19 and chapter 20 is the return to Jerusalem. There's some another final uprising uh, that he's going to have to deal with. And then we're going to get to the get to the appendix of this um, one two part book, First and Second Samuel. So with that, let's look at chapter 19, verse one, right on the heels of what happened at the end of 18. So in fact, you know what? Let's just back up a couple of verses. Remember chapter 18, Joab kills Absalom, even though David said, deal kindly with the young man on my account. Joab kills him, uh, stabs him three times with darts or, or that probably is arrows or javelins of some kind, spears. Uh, and we've looked at all the typology and the symbolism, all of that. But then when news comes to David that his son is dead, we ended off in chapter 18. It says, the, the verse 33, the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he wept, he said, Oh, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, would that I had died instead of you, O Absalom, my son, my son. It's really beautiful. He keeps repeating the word son, my son, my son, would I had died instead of you. And we talked about all of that in the end of last lesson. And so he continues the exact same lamentation in verse 1. So let's keep reading. Chapter 19, verse 1. It was told to Joab, Behold, the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. So victory that day was turned into mourning for all the people. For the people heard that day, this key, the king is grieving for his son. And the people stole into the city that day as people steal in who are ashamed and they flee in battle as cowards, basically. And then again, in verse 4, he continues to greatly mourn the loss of his son. He, uh, he covered his face and the king cried with a loud voice, Oh, my son, Absalom, oh, Absalom, my son, my son. So this is really, really tragic and very moving, despite the fact that Absalom put David through all this misery. And we saw how like over a decade went, on, went by between the events of the, uh, the rape of Tamar and then Absalom plans his revenge against uh, Amnon. All these things happen and he's in exile for years and he comes back. He doesn't even talk to his father. And then he plans this revolt and then he revolts. All this stuff happens and David has to run for his life. And Absalom continues. I mean, remember back in Jerusalem, he's sleeping with the concubines. David still mourns the loss of his son. And a number of commentaries have pointed out the typological connection with Jesus. You know, Jesus, uh, the true king, the Davidic king, the son of God, son of man, son of David, uh, he is crucified because of our sins. We put him on the cross because of everything that we've done to him, and yet he still mourns for us. He mourns the loss of his children. And you can go consult at the end of the Matthew, at the end of Luke, I got a reference here for you in your notes, Matthew 23, 37 and following, plus the parallel passages. He mourns Jerusalem. He says, oh, I would have gathered you like a, like a hen would gather her chicks under her wings. Uh, so even in the midst of being betrayed, Jesus mourns the loss of the city of Jerusalem and, and also mourns the loss of sinners as well who don't repent. And that's what this little quote here in your footnote says. 
from the Navarre Bible, David's sorrow over his son's death despite all that Absalom did shows his greatness and his fatherly heart, a heart that is a figure of the heart of Christ who weeps over the ingratitude and the rebelliousness of men towards his father God, end quote. So we saw in many respects how David is a type of Jesus. Remember lesson one, all those lessons back when we first started this Bible study together, uh, I put down in that introductory lesson all the ways in which David is a type of Jesus. And we've seen the great typology between uh, the Via Dolorosa of David leaving Jerusalem and, 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 and mourning and everyone's throwing stones at him, all, all that stuff compared to Jesus. And here's another element as well as a typological connection, uh, the mourning over the loss of his children. So it's a very, it's a very powerful, very powerful scene here. And I, my heart goes out to, to poor David. But anyways, the story goes on now. And Joab sees all of this. And as you read in verses five and following, he really rebukes David and says, man, you got to you got to pull yourself together because all of your army sees that you're mourning the loss of your son, Absalom. And it's very clear to me that if we were all dead and Absalom were alive, you would prefer that. And that's not going to help morale and your support at all. It's going to things are going to go really, really bad for you. So he rebukes David and says, yeah, get out there and meet your soldiers and thank them for what they did and for them risking their lives for you. And so he does. Uh, David does kind of pull himself together a little bit. He goes down at the gate and everybody uh, comes to greet him uh, there at the gate of the city. Okay. So as things are trying to come back together again, he's returning into Jerusalem. Uh, There is a little bit of seeds of discord that you're going to see in verses, really chapter 19, verse 8, to the second half of verse 8, what we would call B, where the tribe of Judah and the tribe of Israel, you're beginning to see a little bit of a bickering, a little bit of an argument go on between who's going to bring the king back triumphantly, all right? So in chapter 19, verse 8, the second half, it says, Israel fled every man to his own home, and all the people were at strife throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, The king delivered us from the hand of our enemies and saved us from the hand of the Philistines, and now he has fled out of the land from Absalom. But Absalom, whom we anointed king over us, is dead in battle. Now, therefore, why do you say nothing about bringing the king back? So they're deliberating. The 10 tribes of Israel are deliberating back and forth about, oh my gosh, you know, we supported Absalom. He's dead. And so now we better go uh, bring the king back. In the meantime, Judah steps up and quickly brings the king back into Jerusalem with great rejoicing and celebration. This is verse 11. David sent his message to Zadok and Abiathar, the priests. So remember, he had his spies back in the city helping him out so that way he can get communications and dissuade uh, dissuade his son Absalom from making mistakes. And Hushai, the spy, did great work in that regard. But in any case, David now sends word to those two priests, Zadok and Abiathar. He says, say to the elders of Judah, why should you be the last to bring the king back to his house? when the word of all of Israel has come to the king. So again, they're kind of debating and fighting amongst themselves who is going to have the prime of place in bringing the king back. And David says to the elders, you are my kinsmen, my bone and my flesh. Why then should you be the last to bring the king back? Now that little line right there is a little bit of an echo to the days in which he was um, anointed king, right? If you go back to chapter 5, He says, uh, all the people say, you're my bone, you're my flesh. That's all very marital imagery. It's nuptial imagery. It's covenantal language to be bone and flesh because the king is the bridegroom of the people and he is being brought back in procession back to his people. So at first glance, yes, Judah is, I mean, they're they're related to him because he's from the tribe of Judah. Uh, But don't forget that imagery. We talked about this a long time ago, a number of lessons back, the marital imagery, nuptial imagery, the covenantal language 
that the king is the royal bridegroom of the people. So there's that line right there. And then in verse 13, interestingly enough, he says to Amazah, are you not my bone and my flesh? Because Amazah is the nephew of David and Amazah is the cousin of Joab. So Amazah and Joab are cousins. Joab has been David's military commander all along, but as we have seen in multiple chapters, he has got a penchant for uh, murder and for violence, and he doesn't really care too much about who gets in his way. And so uh, Amazah here, however, has been the commander of Absalom's army. So Amazah has been in recent days the enemy of David. But what's interesting is that in verse 13, David says, You're not my, are you not my bone and my flesh? You're my nephew. So God do so to me and more also. That is a covenant oath formula. It's a self-maledictory oath. Uh, God do so, more, do so to me and more also if you are not commander of my army henceforth in place of Joab. And he swayed the heart of all the men of Judah as one man. And they brought him back. Okay. So this is interesting here. Amazah has been recently his enemy by siding with Absalom, but now David promotes Amazah in Joab's position and to take Joab's place as commander of the army. So it seems here that David is trying to finally do something about all of Joab's shenanigans over the years. Here's what your little quote will say from the Ignatius Catholic Study Bible. Even though Amazah sided with Absalom during the rebellion, David promotes him to the position of army commander, no doubt as a political move to help win back the Judaite supporters of Absalom. Besides that, Joab earned a demotion by his insubordination to David, specifically to the king's order to spare the life of Absalom, end quote. So at first glance, it seems really strange why he would promote his uh, rebellious nephew to the position of commander, but it's for these two reasons. David needs to patch things up as quickly as possible. And so if Amazah has a lot of the support from the elders and the shakers and movers of Judah by promoting Amazah and accepting him into his army, he's going to help smooth it over even quicker. And Joab is in big trouble. He's in deep hot water uh, by killing Absalom, his son. And so this is his punishment is to be removed from the post of commander. You might think that he should have done a lot more than that, but nevertheless, David is trying to patch things up every which way he can. All right. So Joab is going to come back into the story here in just a minute. All righty. So David is coming into the city and now he's going to meet all the various people that he ran into while fleeing Jerusalem. He's now coming back, and the various individuals are going to try to placate him and beg for forgiveness. Okay, So here we are in verse chapter 19, verse 16, he meets Shimei. Now remember, Shimei was the guy who was cursing him, spitting at him, throwing dirt and rocks at him, and doing all these bad things. And David accepted it as God's chastisement, saying, if this is God's will, fine, let it let it happen. Well, now Shimei comes to beg forgiveness, but he's not an idiot. He brings a thousand men with him, and that's in verse 17. He brings a thousand men with him to ask forgiveness of David. This is clearly a move that's going to cover all of his bases. Shimei is very politically astute, right? So Shimei says, I beg your forgiveness. Don't remember my past sins. And David essentially uh, says in verse 23, I, he swears an oath, you will not die in verse 23. Why does David do this? Again, it's a political move. He needs to patch things over as quickly as possible. He wants to prevent further bloodshed. And David knows if he seizes Shimei and has Shimei killed, those thousand men that came with him could potentially start another battle. And he doesn't want to be dealing with that. So even though he grants clemency 
to Shimei at this point. Later on in 1 Kings, on his deathbed, after Solomon is ordained king, anointed king, uh, 1 Kings chapter 2, verses 8 and following, he says, don't forget Shimei. Let me find this verse here for you. It's, uh, he's pretty, he, he, he won't forget who wronged him. In verse 8, so this is 1 Kings now, chapter 2, verse 8, he, David says to Solomon, uh, there is also with you Shimei, the son of Jera, the Benjaminite, who cursed me with a grievous curse in the day that I went out to Mahanaim. But when he came down to meet me at the Jordan, I swore to him by the Lord, saying, I will not put you to death with the sword. Now, therefore, hold him not guiltless, for you're a wise man, and you will know what you ought to do to him, and you shall bring his gray head down with blood to Sheol. So David here now, at the end of Second Samuel, knows that he must like swear an oath to protect him in order to pre- to prevent the situation from going from going from bad to worse. But he tells his son, uh, "You need to handle the situation for me because I I couldn't deal with it at the time. So don't worry about Shimei. He's going to be dealt with as we're going to see on the Bible study in First and Second Kings." Alrighty, uh, then. Uh, he's going to meet Mephibosheth. Now, you'll remember Mephibosheth is the son of Jonathan. Back in chapter 9, David showed Mephibosheth great honor um, and brought him into the court and let him eat at his table and gave Mephibosheth all of King Saul's lands and all of this stuff. But if you remember when David was fleeing from Jerusalem, his servant Ziba lied about Mephibosheth, saying that Mephibosheth wants uh, the, the kingdom back and his the, the throne of his father Saul back, and so he stayed back to support your enemies. And at that point, David, without investigating anything, said to Ziba, well, all right, well, then you can have, you can have all of the territories. And you're like, wait, wait a minute, aren't you going to fact check this, David? Like, don't you know what, what the actual truth is? Well, as he's coming back towards Jerusalem here, he meets Mephibosheth in verse 24 and says, well, where were you? Why did you not come with me? That's actually verse 25. And Mephibosheth says, O Lord, my king, my servant deceived me, for your servant said to him, Saddle a donkey for me, that I may ride upon it and go with the king. For your servant is lame. He has slandered your servant to my lord the king, but my lord the king is like the angel of God. Do whatever seems good to you. So the the line is simple. I can't walk. I'm lame, and I need help to saddle the donkey and then be able to leave the city with you. Ziba didn't help me, and I and he's disheveled. Like he hasn't shaved and bathed, and he's stinky and ugly uh, from for all these weeks or however long it was, uh, just because he's in mourning for the king. Now what's interesting is that David's response seems to be completely checked out. It's so disappointing here. Uh, let's go to verse 29. The king says to him, Why speak any more of your affairs? I have decided. You and Ziba shall divide the land. And then Mephibosheth said to the king, Oh, let him take it all since my lord the king has come safely home. Now, this is so frustrating, and many people don't know how to interpret it. And I'm not saying that I know how to interpret it either, but I have a little theory here. At first glance, you're just wondering, is David just, is he weary? He's certainly weary. He's certainly exhausted. But does he not care for Mephibosheth any longer? He swore to his best buddy old pal, Jonathan, to take care of him. And he has been doing that up to this point. Um, but is he uncaring for uh, his, his? I don't even want to call him godson. That's, that's a completely wrong thing to say. But the son of his best friend, uh, is he just overwhelmed with mourning now for Absalom? He can't think straight. Is he testing Mephibosheth? I, I do think that you can make an argument that ever since David's sin with Bathsheba and Uriah, he's been a different man. With everything that's gone on within his own family, 
with his children, uh, the whole the whole story of the rape and then the murder and all of this stuff that goes on, him not in, engaging with Absalom over all those years, he's a different man. And so maybe he's unable to enact justice here because he's just so checked out. That is all 100% possible. I, I think that you can make an argument for that. However, what's interesting to me, and I have seen this in, in one other commentary, I thought about it and I read it in the Hamilton commentary, which is in your suggested reading. So it had a little bit of vindication there. But when he says, oh, don't worry about it, you and Ziba shall divide the land. Okay, again, it's like, you're just, you're not finding out the facts. Why are you doing that? But maybe it's a test because it seems to echo, or at least foreshadow, Solomon's words and his response to the two harlots. If you go back to 1 Kings, or go ahead to 1 Kings chapter 3, remember Solomon famously demonstrated his wisdom by saying to the two, there are two harlots, uh, they each had a son, one died in the middle of the night, and they were fighting over the living son, and he famously says, well, just divide the kid in half and give half to each one of them. But the true mother says, oh, let her keep it, right? So this seems to be kind of the same language about the land. It's not a child in this case, but it's all the inheritance from King Saul. Oh, you could divide the land, okay? Now, but what I haven't seen commented on is that, and this is true, is Mephibosheth says, well, let, let him take it all since my Lord the King has come back. That, to me, echoes the true mother's words with Solomon, who said, oh, let her just keep the son. And this thereby, in my personal opinion here, proves Mephibosheth's innocence. He's like, oh, I don't, whatever. The land is not important to me. You're important to me. So let him just keep the land. It's really fast. I, I do wonder, I cannot prove this at all, but I do really wonder if Solomon uh, knows about the story. He probably does, okay? He knows about the story, and then you, and perhaps if at this point, it's unwritten, but if at this point David realizes that Mephibosheth is the innocent one, this inspires Solomon to utter his wise words to the two prostitutes. You see, right? So just divide the land, divide the children. Oh, he can keep all the land. I'm glad that you're here. And then the prostitute says, oh, she, she should keep it because she's the true mother. I think there's 100% a parallel there. And it is very, very interesting and fun to reflect upon the fact that maybe Solomon learned from his father. Okay. All right. Anyways, I had fun with that and hopefully you understand what I'm trying to uh, put down there.